How are we doing? Good. Good to see you, Joe. I got two of my worship leaders from Okinawa in the front row here, so it's always a good day for us. Uh, hey, if you have a Bible, I hope you do. We got some work to do to, this morning. We are in Acts chapter 2, so begin to work your way there. Uh, Going to cover a, a big chunk of Scripture this morning, so I uh, just want to jump into that pretty quickly here. But uh, I heard some news this week that made my jaw drop. You ever hear news that make your jaw drop? I was on a conference call with some people, not from Denver, but they had been in Denver, and uh, they, they had told me about a restaurant they'd went to, and they said, you know, it's the number one grossing restaurant in North America. My jaw dropped because I've been to this place. I'm like, no way. And so I, I get online and do some, do some research, which consisted of a three-minute Google search, and, uh, and while I couldn't find any hard data... To prove that it was that it did, I did see that it is one of the most, the, the highest grossing restaurants in America. And I'm like, no way. And so doing some more search on that, and I see it has 1,600 Yelp reviews, 2.3 stars. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, highest grossing restaurant in America, 2.3 2. stars. Some of the refu- reviews, often the, the title goes, gross, gross, gross food, amazing place. And you're like, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's accurate. One guy's like, hey, hey, if you're asking what the health score of this place is, dude, you should probably not be going to this place. I'm like, yeah, that's accurate too. And uh, I'm like, this is crazy. How is, how is this even possible? Well, maybe you've figured it out by now in your head, but let me give you one more clue. Imagine if uh, <clears throat> your elementary school lunch lady uh, decided to take her tried and true techniques of cafeteria lunch food, made a restaurant around it, and became the highest grossing restaurant in America. This is where you would be going to, to go to that place. Yes, it's the beautiful house. Yes, Casa Bonita. Casa Bonita, everyone. Of course, you know that. If you're a native from Denver, you're like, of course. And if you're, if you're going to Casa Bonita expecting good food, which is a reasonable expectation to go to a restaurant, but not in this case, if you go there and you're upset and you give a one-star Yelp review, you're an idiot. Because that's not why you go to Casa Bonita. You go to Casa Bonita to get transported back into 1974. Uh, you, you go there for the atmosphere, uh, for, for the, 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 there's, a, there's a cliff and there's people diving in the water. When I was a kid, there would be shootouts there and people, I don't know that they have guns there anymore, but uh, that's what they would do. And there would be caves and games. And you go there to, to raise the little flag to demand from the staff that you want soap papillas and you want them now. That, that's why you go to Casa Bonita. One, one person said, uh, he, he said, I, I, oh, the memories of my brother scaring me in Black Bart's cave and my cousin puking, puking in my aunt's purse are all treasured. <laughs> that's Casa Bonita. And now, at this point, you should be thinking another question. What in the world does Casa Bonita have to do with Acts chapter 2? That's a good question. Uh, because as we, as we started and kicked off the book of Acts last week and, and, and Matthew opened that word and we, we talked about we're going into the book of Acts because we want to be a church on mission. And the, the story of the book of Acts is just the story of the church empowered by the Spirit of God and just blowing open the doors to this thing called the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so we're going there. But, then, but, but Casa Bonita reminded me of something. Casa Benita reminded me that in today's day and age, it does not take that much to fill a room. 
You can even have a restaurant with terrible food and be the highest grossing restaurant in North America, or at least one of the highest. As long as you entertain them, as long as you put some, uh, you know, put, put the cave in there and the lights and, and just make it an atmosphere, uh, you, you can fill a room. And I think about that in the church because it really it's not that hard in America to fill a room. It's not that hard to just, you know, feed them terrible spiritual food. But, but if they're entertained and if, they're, if they come in and they, they leave feeling like a suspended sense of, of reality for a moment and they feel good about themselves, man, they might come back. You might become the highest grossing church in, in North America. But as we look at the book of Acts, we, we have to say, man, is, is that the goal? Is that a win for us to simply fill a room? And the emphatic answer is no. No, the, the, the mission of the church is far too important. It's far too urgent for us to just simply define uh, our Christian life as what we do on one hour on Sunday morning. The mission Jesus has given us is, is a clear and, and uh, urgent command to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world and make disciples of them. And we saw last week, we cannot do this on our own. We have to have power. And so uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the, the thesis statement of the whole book of Acts and really the thesis statement of the whole church for the last 2,000 years is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You get power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the task is urgent. So it's not a win for us to simply build another little micro kingdom and say, pat ourselves on the back and say, man, we're doing pretty well. Now, now don't get me wrong. I do not, I, I not want to knock this time. We're going to see even on the first day of the church that they would gather in a public place and, and under the teaching of the word of God, they would worship and they would pray. So the Bible is for what we're doing here now. I'm just saying it's not the sum total of our mission and our call. In fact, this news is going to make some of you angry. On day one, before lunchtime, the church, which was about 100 people, is going to explode to 3,000 people. The first church and the first mega church was born on day one. So for those of you that are like, well, I just like a small church or I really want a mega church. God says, it's not about you. It's not about what you like or don't like. God is at work when the spirit comes and blows open the doors and, and the church is born. And so we, we gather, but we gather to scatter to fulfill the mission of the church. And so as a church, we've said from day one, this is not new information. This is not a new vision that, that we got. But from day one, actually even before that, when we gathered, we said we want to be a church that is about gospel-centered multiplication. We want to ch plant churches that plant churches that plant churches all from the name and renown of Jesus. And when we, when we started to go public, we came to the Pace Center, and the first room she took us in, the six of us, came in this room, and we're like, no, we can't do that. What's your smallest room? Let's go find that room, and we'll, we'll start there. And, and God has done some things. But again, the, the goal is not that, that this room would get filled up. The goal is that the glory of the knowledge of the Lord would fill our city and fill our state and fill our world, and we would play our part in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so last week... We said, Jesus basically said, I'm going to leave. Your first task is not to go out and do a bunch of stuff. Your first task is to wait. Wait for power. 
And as we look at the book of Acts, we're going to see a few things. Now, you've got to understand, the book of Acts is, is the story of, of God. Uh, Jesus continued, if you will, working through his Holy Spirit in his church. And he's going to do things uh, in, in unique ways at a unique time that he does not do today. And yet there are consistent strands that go through there. So what I mean by that is the, the book of Acts is not like the book of Ephesians more uh, prescriptive, it's descriptive. So we get to uh, observe and see how did the Spirit move? How did God advance the mission of the church? And, And how might he do that in a similar way, although not the exact way, today? And then we get to ask God to to move in power. And so with that, Acts chapter 2, let me pray for us. Because even this text tells us all all of us are wasting our time if the Holy Spirit is not present in this moment. So let's pray. Father, we do come before you now in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you choose to pour out in unique and amazing ways throughout history. And we're asking, God, that you would... You would do that even in our midst, even in this moment, whether it be a a gale force wind that you would blow through here like you did on that first day, or your breeze would move us to places in our lives and in our relationships and in our careers that would honor and glorify you. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to bring the work of illumination, the work of conviction, the work of new life, the work of uh, opening up blind eyes. We need you to do that now. So would you do that through the proclamation of your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, we're going to see a few things. How does God advance the mission of the church when he sends the Spirit? And again, he does that throughout the book of Acts in in unique ways, and yet there are some consistent strands. And he's done that throughout history in unique ways, but there are some consistent strands. I want to hold on to the consistent strands and see if God would do in us what he did in them Here, so Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. So this is 10 days after what we looked at last week. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, I'll send my Spirit. Luke points out this is Pentecost. So this is uh, one of the uh, pilgrimage festivals for the Jewish people. uh, Passover 50 days earlier would have been one of them where they would have observed God's deliverance from, from, uh, from Egypt. Uh, but the Pentecost was a, it was a party. It's like Mardi Gras. It's this time between the, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And it's this time for God's people to gather together. It's called the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. To gather together and with much celebration, with much food and much drink, to, to just kind of celebrate the goodness of God. And so uh, people would travel from all over the world. The Jews had been scattered in many ways. We've, we've seen this throughout the Old Testament. The Assyrians would come in. The Babylonians would come in. Other enemies would come in. And they would conquer Israel and they would scatter the Jews all over the known world. In fact, when, when a list of the people that are present in this moment, if you were to put that on a map, you would see that they come from all over the known world. These Jews have come back, sometimes multiple generations later. They speak other languages now, um, but they are Jews and they're coming back to worship the living God. 
And so in this moment, God is about to bring his restore, re, renewing, restoral, restoral, that's not a word, restoration project on the planet. In Pentecost, it's this party. And it says, as the, as the believers are together, maybe they're praying, maybe they're telling each other about Jesus and what they saw in Jesus. Maybe they're just marveling at the resurrection. We don't know, but we know that they're together. And in a moment, unexpectedly, whoosh, this is a this sound like a train, like, like, a, like a tornado has come into the room. And, and we see in verse 6 that that sound is so loud that it gets the attention of the city. And so when, when the Holy Spirit comes, it gets the attention of the people in this moment. And something happens. And, and to us, we're like, man, that's weird, fire and wind. But that's, that's not weird if you're a, a first century Jew. If you know your Old Testament, you know that, 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 that the way that God uh, presented himself often in the Old Testament was through wind and through fire. When God presented himself to Moses, he was in a burning bush. When God delivered the people out of Egypt, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and, and fire at, at night. Uh, when, when God met with, with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the law and there was fire on the mountain and the people were terrified. And they're like, you, you, you meet with God, Moses. We can't meet with him. So the fire met with Moses. When, when the God's presence came into the tabernacle and into the temple, it was like a, a rushing wind and fire consuming. It, it was this idea that we where there's fire and wind, the power and the presence of God is in that place. And so in this place with these Jews who know that, waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, wind comes and fire comes, but the fire doesn't consume. And what does the fire do? It, it begins to uh, break up. And, and Luke describes it as tongues of fire that come and they rest on the heads of all the believers. Immediately they would have seen this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel 36. 626, a day is coming when I will put a new spirit in you. I will take your spirit out, put my spirit in you. I'll take your hard heart out and I'll put a heart of flesh in you. I'm going to take up residence in you. The presence of God is no longer on a mountain in fire. The presence of God has come down and tabernacled and taken up residence in the believers' lives. And so the fire comes, the power comes that they've been waiting for, and, and something immediately happens. These people who are not known for their bold, courageous witness, these people who had just seen their leader uh, crucified on a cross and murdered, these people now are emboldened. And, and later it'll say, proclaiming the mighty works of God. And as they proclaim the mighty works of God, it says that they are speaking in other tongues. And in this case, this is different from elsewhere in the New Testament, say 1 Corinthians 12 or otherwise. These are actual languages that, that can be heard and understood. In fact, that's what happens as they begin to proclaim the mighty works of God. Uh, the, the people that are hearing this from all over the world that speak different languages are immediately amazed and astonished. Verse 7. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then he gives a long list of the people. And again, it's, the whole, it's, it's as if God is bringing back his covenant people. And he's restoring Israel. And they hear the mighty works of God again by his spirit in these believers. 
Verse uh, 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Something is up. What is happening? What does this mean? It means the church is being born. The, the, the believers are now filled with the Spirit. They are filled for powerful, courageous gospel proclamation. And some of them are confused. They say, man, these people must be drunk. That's what's happening here because they they have no inhibition. You know, you can either be drunk and stupid with no inhibition, but now they're, they're, they're in a sense, drunk with the Spirit, meaning they have no inhibition because they they, they, they have the truth, they have the knowledge, and they are free to proclaim the mighty works of God. And so uh, Peter stands up. Peter, who had denied Jesus, Peter, who had, uh, not, who had lacked courage, Peter now filled with the Spirit. We see the first strand of what happens when someone is filled with the Spirit. He's emboldened. He's empowered. He's filled with the presence of the Spirit. It says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Love verse 15. For these people are not drunk. As you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, it's 9 a.m. He's like, maybe if it's 9 p.m., you could make that charge, but it's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. And then he begins to give an explanation. Filled by the Spirit, he begins to give an explanation. And he goes back, he points to the, the minor prophet of Joel. And he says, Joel promised that a day would come in the last days that God would pour out his Spirit. And, and men and women and boys and girls, they would prophesy and they would proclaim the mighty works of God. This is what you're seeing. And then at the end of that little quick explanation... Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's going, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to proclaim the gospel. This is a common strand throughout the book of Acts. This is a common strand throughout uh, 2,000 years of church history. Those, when God pours out his spirit, even in a unique way, uh, the gospel begins to be proclaimed with boldness, power, and clarity, and the spirit begins to move through that. And so this is what he's going to do. Notice Peter doesn't spend much time talking to them about the Holy Spirit. Because if you remember, uh, Jesus is teaching about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, you'll know the Spirit is at work and present because he will glorify me. And so evidence of the Spirit at work and move in a person's life, in a church, is, is Jesus being seen, is Jesus being lifted up. The Spirit is doing that. The Spirit is opening our eyes. And so, so Peter pivots to Jesus and wants to share the gospel with these people. And empowered by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, he shares the gospel. And here's the first thing we see just immediately from the context. God meets you where you're at. God meets us where we're at. So these Jews who had traveled from all over the world to come to to Pentecost, they're not not in synagogue, they're not in the temple, they're they're just kind of celebrating, they're not expecting anything. But in that moment, the presence and the power of God comes and begins to meet these people where they're at. And that's true of you and that's true of me. I don't know where you were at when Jesus met you. I know where Joe was at. Because uh, he got saved about a week after I met him. 
And the Spirit came in that moment in Okinawa a week before. He said, I'll never be a Christian. But a week later, he, the Spirit had come into his life and he was absolutely transformed by that moment. I know, I know where I was at. It wasn't necessarily a one moment, but a six-month period of time. I had barely graduated high school. I was smoking weed at the time. And so, so there's that. You're going to listen to that today. Um, and um, so, yeah. I mean, God has a sense of humor, and so I'm going, and then God begins to send circumstances and people in my life to proclaim the mighty works of God, so that one point, I'm delivering pizzas, I'm standing in the back of Pizza Hut, folding boxes, getting ready, and someone is proclaiming the mighty works of God, and God met me where I was at, and this beautiful news because otherwise it would be God saying to you, hey, clean yourself up, get better, do some good works, and then we can meet halfway. No, that's not the gospel. And maybe you, you, you say, well, I, I've always known Jesus. No, at some point, I'm not talking about when you were seven and you, you confessed faith. I'm, at some point, uh, your parents' faith really became your faith, and God met you where you were at. So where were you when God met you? Maybe that is today. God would meet you where you're at. And so in Pentecost, in Mardi Gras, in this place, unexpected, God shows up and begins to meet people where they're at. And, and the gospel gets proclaimed. Peter will, will, will preach the gospel. Listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to what he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, so he puts it on God, the sovereignty of God. This is the definite plan. This is the foreknowledge of God. God planned this from before the creation of the world that Jesus would come. He'd be delivered up. He would die for the sins of the world. God is sovereign. But then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, you're responsible. God is sovereign. You're responsible. In fact, this is uh, one of the least seeker-sensitive sermons you'll ever hear, apart from maybe Jonah's. Uh, He'll he'll say it again at the end of his sermon, uh, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified... So, so there are thousands and thousands of people that are listening to Jesus, to, to Peter speak, and he says, you're responsible. Now, now you gotta, I got to believe that they aren't all responsible, right? Like some of them probably, they didn't hang out from Passover in Jerusalem for 50 days. Maybe, maybe some of them just came in, and, but Peter doesn't care. He's just like, the blood's on your hands. The blood's on your hands. So you keep, because Peter understands the bigger picture, now, now, we're 2,000 years later. We're not even on that continent. We don't speak that language. Sure, certainly, we didn't crucify Jesus. Yes, in a sense, we did. We are responsible for him going to the cross and dying for us. So Mel Gibson, in his movie, The Passion of the Christ, was only in one scene. Did you know that he is in one scene? It's the scene that his hand is holding the hammer that is going to drive the nails through Jesus' wrists. It's his way of just saying, I, I'm complicit in this as well. And so Peter just puts the, so, so here's this, so God meets us where, us at, where we're at. And the second thing is, God tells us the truth about ourselves. 
And that is offensive to our culture, but, but if you'll just bear with me for a moment, it is incredibly freeing. God tells you the truth about yourself. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you want to just unpack the Greek in that, that word all just means all. So at the foot of the cross, it's even. There, there is no one in this room that is better than anyone else in this room or beyond this room. We are all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God tells us the truth about ourselves. And that is good news. Right? Our culture says we want, we want a church that, we want a, a God that just says, hey, you're awesome. You're so good. I'm so glad that you're in this world. Like, our culture says that's what they want for God. But in the end, could you really worship a God like that? I couldn't. Because I know. I know I'm not awesome. I know the proclivities of my heart. I know the bent of my heart is not to love and serve and honor God and honor people. The, the bent of my heart is to be, to be loved and to be served and, and to have my wife and my kids to, be, to, to love me. The bent of my heart is lust, pride, greed, idolatry. The list goes on and on and it's still like that. And I knew that before I was even a Christian. I, was, I felt guilt because I was guilty. I had shame because I had a shameful heart. And I'm not just talking about outward, uh, you know, bad sins. Jesus will say there are those that pursue self-righteousness that look very good on the outside, but on the inside, they're, they're, they're serving themselves, they're glorifying themselves. In all ways, we, uh, we have sinned before God, and, and Romans will go even further back. That's kind of the fruit of our sin. Further back in Romans chapter 1, it says, uh, you were... Uh, we believed the lie rather than the truth. We worshiped uh, the cre creation rather than the, the creator. We said we want the things of God without God. And, and we've all turned our back on God. And so, empowered by the Spirit, God meets us where we're at, tells us the truth about ourselves. And now, there's freedom in that. Because where you have no secrets, there's freedom. You know, if anyone comes in a room and says, hey, we found out something about you, and you're like, oh, oh what did they find out? There's this moment of fear. But before God, you just know. He knows everything. And when he knows everything, man, you, you know everything. You know me better than me. You know all of my sin. And yet and still, you love me. And you gave yourself up for me. So Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then Romans 3.24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's a path. Now, now there's a hope for these people. If they, after they recognize Jesus' blood is on their hands. And so Peter, preaching to these Jewish people, will, will go to the Jewish scriptures and in depth show them that from Moses and from David and from Joel and from Ezekiel, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again and Jesus conquered death and the grave. So then we see the next part of this. After verse 36, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, the spirit moves to bring conviction. Jesus said, when the spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. And this is what the spirit is doing. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He pleads with them. Repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin. Recognize that you're not awesome, but God is. Turn from your sin and be baptized. That's just a, with, through faith, an outward symbol of an inward reality. Uh, just proclaim to the world that Christ is yours. And, and then he says, uh, verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The gospel empowered by the Spirit is, it brings a sense of urgency to it. There, there's urgency. And so it says, Peter, full of the Spirit, is, is pleading with these people, save yourselves. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, see, the gospel demands a response. The gospel demands and will always have a response. The Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So when the gospel is proclaimed, one of two things is happening in every heart, every time. The gospel is not just for those that don't yet know Jesus, the gospel is for those that have been saved, that are being saved, that will be saved. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And every time you hear and sit under the gospel, Paul will say in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It is the power of God. When the, the gospel gets proclaimed, something is happening. Either your heart is being hardened or it is being softened to the things of God. And it terrifies us as pastors to know that every time we come together and we want to have a gospel-centered service and we read the gospel, we sing the gospel, we hear the gospel, and in a sense we taste the gospel, every time there are some of you that your hearts are getting harder and harder every time. Now, you wouldn't say that. You say, what do you mean? I checked the box. I went to church once a week. That's good to go, right? That's what God would expect from me. That's what the gospel is, right? No. No, it's so much more than that. And then there's others of you, when you hear the gospel, for the first time or the 10,000th time, your heart is softened and you are reminded of God's goodness and grace to you. And, 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 and with urgency, Peter is empowered by the Spirit, pleading with them, be, save yourselves, turn, repent. Then, then the Spirit does what only the Spirit can do. He brings 3,000 people in that moment from death to life. Again, from little church to mega church in that moment. You know what? They had no building. They had no programs. They didn't have a rock wall for the kids. They had no fog machines or lasers, but they had everything they needed for a 3,000 member church. They had the Spirit of God filled in the people of God. And so we see the results of that. Oftentimes we like to, I do, I've preached on this. I take verse 42 and following and make it its own sermon. But, but look what it says. And the, 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 the implication is in light of the Spirit's coming, the Spirit's empowering, the Spirit's filling, the gospel proclaimed, people getting saved. In light of all that, here's what happened. And they 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together, so that's probably in the temple courts. They, they met publicly, all 3,000 of, of them together, and breaking bread in their homes. They met privately in their gospel communities, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord continued to add to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is what it looks like when the Spirit pours out in power on his people. Now, now, some of you might get nervous about that again. You're like, well, I only want a church that's 50 people. Now we got 3,000 people. How do we do that? Or maybe you've been part of churches that have gone one of two directions. And they'll be like, we're all mission. We don't care about anyone. We're just going to move forward, move forward, move forward, move forward. And, and people are going to get ground up along the way. But that's okay because the mission's going to go forward. And there's other churches that'll be like, well, well, we'll get to the mission eventually, but the 20 of us, we're just going to make sure we all mature together spiritually. We all grow. And when everyone has no problems and everyone's good, then we might think about doing the mission, but we're just going to keep it tight right here. And we're going to grow together. And neither one is what happens in the first century church. That there is a purpose for the church and a place for every person when the spirit comes. The purpose of the church does move on. It does move forward. And together we have a mission. And yet because the Spirit is in every person, they are loving, generous. Did you see the adjectives about them? They're, they're glad. They're, they're generous. They're sharing. They're caring for one another. No one gets left behind. And the mission moves forward. And that's our heart. That we would be a people filled by the Spirit of God who fills our mouths with the gospel of God and fills our hearts with the love of God for one another, and for our city. And so, how do you respond? Again, this is, this is, I mean, Matthew and I met this week. We just said, this is awkward for us because this text tells us, on the one hand, it's all the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, the plea that Peter makes is a genuine plea, save yourselves. And so, I would just say, is, is the gospel hardening your heart or softening your heart? Plea with, plea with God even right now to have it soften your heart. Even right now, there is the offer of salvation. You can believe, repent, be baptized, all those things. And so just ask God to, to, to do that for you. Secondly, as a church who's been given a clear command and, and mandate, who's been given the spirit to love one another and to love this city, how do we move forward? Well, on the one hand, when you become a believer, every believer get, receives the Holy Spirit, is sealed by the Spirit, is, is brought from death to life. But, but there are unique moments in the book of Acts and elsewhere where, where, where the, the Spirit pours out in unique ways. We want to ask for the Spirit to pour out in unique ways so that the mission would go forward. So let's, let's plead with him for that. Jesus told Nicodemus, he says, the Spirit's like the wind. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. But what we can do is, with our church, with our, our, our ship, we can raise the sails and, and prepare the lines and get ready so that when the spirit wind comes, we are prepared that, that it fills our sails and we go forward with this mission of grace and mercy in the heart of God. And so let's be a church that prays for that, anticipates that, that, that asks God for that, 
And let's be a church that, that is ready when that wind comes to ride the waves. To that end, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, I, I'm so grateful for the fact that you don't only save us, you don't tell us to go out and, and do a bunch of stuff in our own strength. In fact, you tell us to do none of it in our own strength. And that we will receive power from your Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Lord, help us to do that right here in our Jerusalem. Help us to do that in our Judea and Samaria, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Lord, help us by your spirit to do that even to the ends of the earth. God, I want to pray right now, especially for those that you've allowed us to just partner with. Pray for our our three families that are are missionaries in Italy. Lord, would you uh, just pour out your spirit on them today? Would you encourage them? Would you encourage them as they think through uh, just gospel, bold gospel proclamation? Would you uh, help them even this afternoon, even about right now as they gather in, in their church in Italy? May it just be evident that you're at work in them. Lord, I want to pray for those that are in this room that would receive a call to go to the foreign mission field, that you would, uh, again, just uh, uh, work the gospel over in them. May their heart very soft and tender to your leading and, and power by your spirit, Lord. And, and us as a church, help us to show, show us how we can support, love, encourage, send, and, and finance that. Lord, I want to pray especially for those that are in this room that are, are going to be called by your spirit to, to go in September and to go to Castle Rock and, and uh, with full of faith and full of your spirit to proclaim the good news of God in that city. Lord, I just pray that right now you just confirm that in their hearts, in their minds. Lord, fill them with your spirit. Give them an excitement, a boldness, a willingness to, to be like that first church with open hands, generosity to serve that city and to serve that church, Lord, there. God, and, and would, would you continue to do a work here at Redemption Parker? Lord, I pray that we would be a church on mission, but it would also be a church that serves and loves one another in such a way that it's attractive and that you would add to our number day by day those that would be saved. We ask all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.